You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. How is everyone doing? I hope you're all doing pretty well this week. Thanks to everyone who has been reaching out and saying hello. We seem to have been inundated since the start of the year with people saying that they're enjoying what we're doing. So thank you if you have spoken to me. I appreciate it. And if you're thinking about it, feel free to give me a shout. I'd be happy to hear from you. Now, a few weeks back on episode 102, which was actually a really popular show, got some really good feedback. I interviewed Simon Robinson, who was a QS from subport helping subcontractors and in that show we talked a lot about how main contractors manage risk with subcontractors and it got me thinking because well to be honest with you i've been thinking about it for a long time i even wrote my dissertation on how construction companies manage risk so it's always been something at the top of my mind particularly because i was a subcontractor all my time and i was doing that episode with simon and thinking i would love to speak to someone who was a genuine expert in risk as opposed to just a QS because QSs have a certain way of managing things and I thought it'd be really interesting to invite in an expert. So in the studio today, I'm joined by Chris Ritson, who is a senior risk and uncertainty consultant at Saffron. I know that I've already got everyone's attention. Saffron are a software company building a unified project management solution designed to help organisations tackle complex capital projects with confidence. And I was introduced to Chris by Gareth Evans from episode 96, who described to me that Chris was a risk genius. The bar has been set and it has been set very high. I see Chris is wincing right next to me here. How are you doing, Chris? Are you happy with that? Hi, Paul. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's quite a high bar. So the risk genius, Like, what, what are you thinking when... What have you done so that Gareth is calling you a risk genius? I'm genuinely not being humble when I say I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I looked at your profile. We've chatted. I mean, you were up for lots of awards. Risk Manager of the Year 2017. You were a finest of. Winner of Risk Innovation of the Year in 2017. So I think my mission to find a disciple of risk management and a very good one. I feel like I'm on uh, the right path here. So I'm very pleased to have you on the show, Chris. Do me a favour for everyone who is listening. Talk to us about your experience in construction and your experience in risk and what you're now doing. Okay, so I started in 2005, six thereabouts in the highways in- industry and it was uh, over here in Bristol, where, where I live, and we were covering a, a very large geographic region, lots of small projects, some big projects, so lots of infrastructure, roads, bridges, uh, everything else in between uh, in the southwest. And when I joined, it was just as um, almost a bit like a dog's body between two teams. It was like the quality assurance team and the risk management team, sort of 50-50 split. And I was helping them to implement their risk database where 
they were using it to capture their non-conformance reports, NCRs, for their issues, but then also for threats and opportunities. Uh, and they were capturing those on their risk register there as well on, on that database. So I was kind of like helping maintain the database until I then grew into actually learning how to facilitate risk workshops and things like that and kind of grew in my career from that kind of graduate job to begin with. So that's kind of where it all started. And that was on a very unique contract where they really wanted to do risk management to the likes of which has never been seen on a highways contract before. So that was kind of like, so I was already in at a kind of higher level perhaps than what would be seen as typical at that mm -hmm. time. So, you know. Great introduction, very I guess, at the very, start of your career. Yeah, very, very fortunate. And I had some great mentorship from, uh, it would have been Mott McDonald, risk managers at, at the time uh, from Colin and then, and then Ian. So that was, that was my introduction. And I was working for Balfour Beatty at, at that time. Um, and then just blitzing through kind of the rest of the story very quickly for this sake of brevity and, you know, an introduction. <laughs> that ended, I ended up uh, in Crossrail uh, on the Paddington Underground Station, the new build. Not many risks to manage on that project, were there? No, I couldn't find any. And then <laughs> I left there to come into Network Rail with Costain. So it was a Skanska, Costain... And then back into, uh, there was a, a brief period of a couple of years where I was with ABC joint venture, which was a Costain joint venture. Uh, again, that was rail sector related for the electrification projects. And then we get back to uh, high speed two. So that was kind of the, the, the quick, quick version. And then all the other things uh, have genuinely happened in between. Yeah. So you've done a lot of risk management for contractors tier one contractors tier one organizations on large large projects that are generally infrastructure highways rail etc you're now senior risk and uncertainty consultant i i only noticed this morning that that was your title and i have to say i absolutely loved it particularly the <laughs> uncertainty consultant what are you doing now at safran so i joined safran just over three years ago and that was a, a jump that I made after trying to compare some software on the market that could do our Monte Carlo simulation. So risk analysis of both schedule and cost. What I was trying to do was actually find a way of integrating both into a holistic model. So it's quite typical to find that some people will run like a, a cost risk model on a spreadsheet, but then they'll have to run a different software program for the, the schedule for taking something like from P6 or Microsoft Project and then stressing it with risk and uncertainties. So I wanted to find something that did both. And that's how I discovered Safran Risk. And I compared it to other products in the market. And just for me personally, for various reasons, user interface, ease of use, and all those kinds of things, mostly workflow and things, that just meant that I was just really sold on it because I could sort of see that it was greater than the sum of its parts and what it was actually trying to do. And I was really sort of inspired by that. And then a few conversations later, um, and I ended up joining them. And now I'm promoting them, I'm educating, and I'm introducing people to the, the product. Uh, and we, there's another product as well. I mean, there's a, Safran have a few products. They're all project management, project related. So scheduling is like the pedigree. They're 25-year-old company. Uh, so they've got a scheduling engine that's uh, equivalent to something like P6. So you can do it in P6. The likelihood is you can do it in Safran. 
and then they've built their wrist module on top of that and then more recently we've also got a kind of I'd say a, an enterprise, almost like an enterprise risk system. So a database approach for your risk registers, but we've kind of like brought it down to how do you promote it on projects for day-to-day -day use with people that, that that's not their normal language talking in like risk jargon and things like that. So I've got a real passion and I've always had that passion from back in 2006 onwards uh, to how do you actually get people to do risk management when they're busy people? You know? Exactly. There are other exactly. things that they'd rather be doing. So that that's looking at user interfaces and, and how do you make that experience just more accessible, transparent? Because if you, what I found uh, very early on in my career was that if you have these systems that are built for other risk people, then it's like a barrier of entry. You can't get people filling the system with useful information. And if you're into that situation, then you have a risk system on paper only and not actually, um, you know, in practice, you're not getting the benefits, the academic benefits or even the, the marketing benefits that you've been sold. So you have to have engagement with the people. Yeah, that, that, that makes total sense to me. So we're speaking to a man who is a risk proficionado working for a company that is managing risks through technology which is amazing. I want to ground our conversation as I do almost week in, week out on this podcast. So what is risk management to you and what does a risk manager do in construction? So risk management to me is just getting the team to set aside a bit of time and for what could be seen as a small amount of effort and investment up front can actually yield some great benefits later on downstream. And if you just continue being busy and busy and focusing on the things that you think are important, then you're going to lose that opportunity to just pivot and change and get some extra value that is there. You know, it's, it's, it just needs a bit of time to be given over to that. So in terms of what risk management is, I mean, really, risk management is different to different people. It's like beauty's in the eye of the beholder and different people different perspectives like just in terms of what i do i do project level risk mostly some experience in corporate level risk management even those two things are different even though they might be in the same company but then if you're an actuary you, you know you're working in the insurance industry or maybe you're working in banking finance different forms of risk management yeah uh, so risk management Risk management for projects, then, is where we want to yeah. focus. Risk management in construction. Yes. And, and then even there, you've still got other forms of risk management. So like commercial directors and managers and such like, they're going to be very familiar with risk in terms of contracts and what is written in contracts and how does it apportion risk between parties, delineation of responsibilities and such like. So again, that's a kind of different form of risk management. And then if you're an engineer you are going to be looking at tensile strengths and things like that of physical Technical risk management. Yeah, almost. physical properties of things and where are the thresholds, where it's within a, uh, a range of uh, tolerance that is suitable and where does it fall outside that range. And then you've got auditing, you know, that I've kind of mentioned, alluded to that right at the start, where they're looking for non-conformances to processes and, and things like this. So again, it's another form of risk management environmental statements and you know what are we going to do you know you're looking at thresholds of what you 
are and are not going to do with respect to upsetting the balance in the natural environment or upsetting stakeholders. Um, so you think of any enabling team on a project, whether that is those that handle the media and and people that are going to be affected by it. You know, you've got all these kind of like niche little teams and they all manage risk differently. So when you brought up Gareth at the start, you know, Gareth is at the time that I met him, we were hand, he was in charge of procurement. So procurement risk management is, again, is going to be very particular and different there to how I would typically do project risk on a risk register and, and looking at change management and how that affects things. So that, that, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, when you think about your basic risk register i'm going to excuse how layman this is going to be but you know you have commercial risks financial risks physical risks environmental risks like you, you you define them all and is a risk manager there to kind of manage all of the project risks and liaise with who's managing the commercial the physical etc is that what a risk manager typically does in in these tier one contractors no no actually so a risk manager on the, these kind of construction projects is something different. So they're, they're more of an enabler. They facilitate and they make sure that people do spend that little small fraction of time actually thinking about some of these uh, things. And the reason why we do that, the reason why we have to do that as well is because we have to try and reframe people's perspectives on the objectives. Like what's the objectives of the project and how are these things that you're telling me, how are they going to affect the pro project objectives? Like whether it's a, a milestone that for delivery or a particular promise that might have been made to the customer, you know, like we're going to reopen this road at, by this exact date and that's what we've publicly stated and that becomes really important. So some, some of these objectives help you articulate why something's important. Why is this risk more important than that risk when it comes to assessing risk? So a risk manager facilitates those discussions to actually occur and formalizes and helps standardize into a format that can be then consumed such that decision makers, uh, C-suite and whatnot, can actually make some kind of actionable, informed decision. And if at all possible, a, risk, a good risk manager will try to make some recommendations as well because you know important people, busy people, not much time in their day and if you just give them data they'll just look at it and go oh wonderful now what do you want me to do with all this so you, it's about like i think i, I put a, a meme type picture up on linkedin once uh, you know a uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy or the babel fish it's like a universal translator it's like you have to talk to all these different disciplines enabling functions be they engineers commercial quantity surveyors uh, environment teams and whatnot and then you have to kind of turn all of that into what is more important than the other thing, because they all think those things are the most important things to them, but aren't necessarily the most important things to the people running the show. And in turn, you've then got customers and stakeholders external to the project, which will see things through a different lens, different perspective. Very differently. Well, I think that that's, you've, you've touched on something really interesting. There. You talked about a project objectives, you've talked about what the priorities actually are. And... I think it might sound unusual to uh, to some people listening. Project objectives. What what are you going on about project objectives? But it makes total sense when you're talking about milestones or or, or the like. Depending on 
what this specific project is. Talk to me about project objectives, how they are set and who sets them. Because it seems to me like that then grounds the entire risk management process. And it should. And, and a risk management plan, which is where you should start your process by drafting a risk management plan, should make clear and articulate what are the priority objectives. Okay, And those objectives can be financial, they can be uh, schedule related. Uh, quite often they are, and you'll see those in contracts because they'll be the key date milestones and things. Well, key date milestones, access dates, handover dates, uh, we see those quite a lot. Those are the easy ones to think about. They kind of come to hand really easy. But if you are something like a high speed two, then you will have other things, other promises that you're making because you affect so many people. It's, it is genuinely a mega project, right? So you're making all these other kinds of promises. So you would have, like I seem to recall something like a, a reduction in carbon, like Whatever the industry standard is, we are going to try and better it. We're going to try and set a new standard for, you know, the, the next century of building projects, building big civil engineering construction projects. So they will set a target. I can't remember what it is. It'll be like 20%, 50%. So they'll pick a target. So now that you've named it, now that you've articulated it, capture it, and now start thinking about what the thresholds are in terms of, you know, are you achieving or not achieving and monitoring that? And you go back again to, okay, so what if you do or do not achieve that promise? Who's most affected by that? And then you can start looking through the, those lenses and those perspectives again. And that would help you to sort of articulate internally, at least. And, and presumably your customer will help with that process. They're going to take the lead in terms of telling you what's most important to them. And if you are, so that makes sense, right, you know, again, There'll be SME, people working at SMEs listening to this and thinking, oh, this doesn't feel like this has anything to do with me, to be honest. You're talking about HS2 and, you know, HS2 sets these big macro objectives, let's let's say, on the project. Have these big macro objectives that you're then risk managing as the risk manager. But surely that then filters through the supply chain, the main, the subcontracts, the secondary subcontractors. It feels a bit abstract at times. I know we're on the, we're talking about a mega project here, but how should you be acting down the supply chain, whether it's main, sub or secondary subcontractor, for instance, to actually be ensuring that those objectives are hit? How, how would you do that? Well, I think you would probably do that through the procurement process. You'd do it through the contracts, but the, the works information that you sort of share with those SMEs and the supply chain if you can articulate to them why it's important to you and therefore impress upon them why you need them to behave and act in a certain way to achieve these things. And, you know, they might be a small cog, they might be a much larger cog in the process of delivering that. But if you can kind of align everyone towards the same objective, then you're more likely to achieve that objective and reduce the uncertainty around whether or not you can or cannot. So, okay. And I've I think you've almost just hit the nail on the head there, actually. And that's, you know, going back to the inspiration almost for this conversation is how QSs maybe think that they do that through procurement versus how someone like you would look at the way QSs are doing it and think that there could be a different way. Yeah, and I, and I think this is a, a really key or good example of this is health and safety. 
So health and safety risk management is the other big one that wasn't mentioned earlier. And they, in some respects, have a much easier job than someone like me uh, doing kind of project risk in all its different shapes and sizes, right? And colors and flavors, because health and safety just has this kind of one overarching goal that, you know, you come to work and the expectation is no accidents and you go home in as good a condition, if not better, <laughs> than when you started your working day. And everyone can get on board with that. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's a singular vision. It doesn't matter what project, where in the in the UK, you can reasonably expect those to be the terms, you know, the, the expectations. When you then start diving into, oh, we've got multiple objectives, that's where it gets a little trickier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think we're getting to kind of, the real meat now of the topic and i want to ask you a lot more about this and particularly around procurement but we will do that right after this break chris hello it's me again i wanted to share a quick story with you on why i co-founded ceiling with my best mate chris chris and i we're both qs's and this is going to sound sad but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming, and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. So, I think that was a really good first half to the show and we segued kind of onto what where i wanted to take the conversation really in the second half of the show which is more focused on commercial risk management there'll be lots of commercially minded qs's commercial managers commercial directors even there'll be managing directors at main contractors listening to this and they'll be thinking prominently how do i manage commercial risk how am i managing commercial risk on this project right now and i'm interested to hear from you the mentality and culture that you have around risk management, because it will be totally different to my experience as a former commercial manager. And I'm interested to see like what the difference is, how you actually go about identifying and managing risks versus how I experienced it, which is much more, what risk have I got on this subcontract package? How can I remove it? Or how can I pass it down somewhere else and have it managed by someone who's more capable of it so my question to you is what is your view on the way that commercial teams manage risk and construction so we already kind of touched on like the contracts now the contracts is going to be the, the principal starting point because it delineates responsibilities between different parties and apportions the risk that way so if we all just take that as our common understanding of as a starting point so after that when you are then getting into say subcontracting you can then look at, and what I've seen done before would be QS or someone in commercial sits down, they, they draft top 10 things that comes to their mind, pop them into a spreadsheet, 
and they do a very quick assessment kind of like a red amber green kind of traffic light flag kind of thing and they do a kind of little mini risk register for themselves now i applaud that because at least they're thinking about risk right so this is really it's, it's good where that can go further is i've seen people then say well this is just qualitative this is just my gut feel if i put some numbers to this that would actually help rationalize whether or not these are the the right things to be worried about or not and it starts to put additional framing additional context around it so they might say probability that this one in their list will happen and then probability the next one so they could look at it in terms of probabilities then they could look at it in terms of probability of the most likely impact they wanted to get slightly spicier saucier they could look at what's the best case and the worst case and so they come up with the traditional three-point estimate so i've seen that uh, throughout my career right from the beginning because the systems i've been exposed to have always kind of kind of been more sort of starting there so it's a sliding scale of maturity and you know there's, there's often i like to say there's no real right or wrong answer here when it comes to some of these things because depending going back to that context again if your context is that you're on, I don't know, something that's low risk to the overall objectives, then does it really matter? Like, can your your gut feel intuition just get you through what you need to do? As long as you have the objectives, right? Yeah. So as, as long as the objectives are communicated and you understand what's at stake, what is at risk, then that will help you make a decision on the level of maturity uh, and sort of sophistication that you should be getting involved in in terms of uh, articulation of identification of risk, assessment of risk, uh, and then what are you going to do about it, which is the most important thing. Because once you've learned something, you have to react to that information. It's no good just sitting on a spreadsheet somewhere that you know. It has to be shared, it has to be communicated. So there are risk management processes out there. Uh, ISO 31000 is, is a, a sort of standard one that you look at. Um, there's, there's others available. The Association Project Management has one. Look at the PRAM guide. There's also Institute of Risk Management as an organization. If you want to learn more, they will point you in various different directions for different types of risk management and things. But you will find what looks like a very similar process. It might be a four-step process, like a Plan, Do, Check, Act, or it might be seven or more, and it will be using different words but approximately meaning the same thing in approximately the same order. So it doesn't matter if you're in America, UK, somewhere else around the planet, you'll find a risk process locally to you that kind of makes sense and it will do broadly the same thing because you kind of do the same things in a repeatable, logical kind of order to a point. Um, a little caveating statement there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so where this gets more involved i suppose is that you can then take those simple spreadsheet models that you might throw together come up with what we call an emv estimated mean value or estimated monetary value or you could do a same three-point estimate and probability for schedule impact you, why not you could do that it's not the same thing as doing a schedule risk analysis that uses the actual logic of the actual schedule because some risks will affect critical path and some will not so that's a different higher level of maturity and a risk assessment when you're doing it like that, which is what I do in Safran, right? So you've got different formats, but you mustn't get too hung up on 
always doing it perfectly to the best possible standard. You should always, um, it's one of like the key tenants in the Institute of Risk Management when you kind of look into the research on risk is that you have to be proportionate is a really good word to use here, proportionate to the amount of risk that you are exposed you're to. You're managing. What in terms of yeah. the frequency and the volume of risk management exactly. that you're doing? Exactly, yeah. Okay. So, so when the stakes start climbing, you need to start thinking about how do I do more commensurate to the risk exposure faced here. I think that's fantastic advice. And that will resonate with the broad spectrum of listeners who probably go all the way up to like your HS2 style project but we'll come all the way down to you know doing a half a million pound million pound build right and yeah commensurate level of management for the kind of project that you're on just touching on frameworks right and i know you're saying there's loads of different frameworks and none of them are right or wrong that estimated monetary value kind of level is is the furthest level i ever got to in terms of how we would manage risk whereby you would kind of have the risk you'd have the probability then have the the value that you'd attribute to it and all those different things so you could say this is the risk that these are the big risk etc and you'd be able to manage it that way i think from my experience that having a risk register now i was a subcontractor but a large subcontractor having a risk register internally on a project was rare how how does that make you feel as a risk manager I'm not surprised to hear that. I've always worked on projects that were basically the NEC-free type contract. So there was a requirement to have something, contractual requirement to have risk register, capital R, capital R, which is actually, when you look at what it really is, it's not a risk register in what you and I have been talking about so far. It's actually something else. It's actually more of a change management register and documentation to standardize what should we do when new information becomes available but that it would be supported by other risk processes like the ones that you and i've been discussing up to this point and it's just the format and the level of uh you know the amount of data you want to start capturing on those is going to be different depending on different projects yeah i think it's interesting isn't it and i think you've kind of hit the nail on the head Uh, and steal your language again but it is the commensurate level of process like how much do we actually need to do for what we are building today and that will be very different for everybody listening i guess a question that i would ask you though is at a minimum what is the minimum level of risk management you should be applying to a construction project i feel like quite experienced in the topic right and i want to be kind of i want to be kind of careful about what i say here because just a little bit. In the in a utopia, right? You would have uh, everyone's processes and steep procedures, like their sort of standard operating practices, written down somewhere, so that if Dave couldn't come to work today, Jeff could come in in his place. He'd follow the same process procedures, and the company gets the same outcome. It's the same result because they followed the same standard, right? That process was written in a certain way such that it was cognizant of the risk that that process is designed to manage. So just because there might be an absence of a risk register doesn't mean there's an absence of risk management. And and in a utopia, if everyone has perfect uh, historical evidence to help them 
uh, write their processes, procedures, such that it is kind of bulletproofs them against all kinds of deviations and things like that. That sounds like great, but the, the reality is as you scale and get bigger, your complexity, the number of moving parts, the agents, the number of stakeholders talking to one another, the amount of feedback loops from one from party A to party Z and back again to C to, to F, you know, it can just grow, grow, grow and grow arms and legs and walk off the table and out the door. And, you know, it can it can just avalanche and snowball beyond recognition. So that's why when we start talking about the uh, the commensurate approach, you have to recognize that there is probably some degree of risk management happening anyway. Then there's a more visible kind of this thing that is called the risk register. And maybe we have a risk manager that helps uh, keep things uh, moving in the right direction, consistent approach to the data capture and making sure that people spend the time thinking outside of their usual box, which is their process procedure. So it captures the additional. So if you're in a project where you think there's just something about this project that's a bit different or it's bigger and therefore something might emerge out that we've never really handled or dealt with before. So I think you have to think in those kind of terms uh, about what the thresholds and what the triggers are for increasing the level of sophistication that you want to apply. And then when you do scale up to the bigger projects, to the several million pound projects and the mega projects, then it becomes increasingly important to start standardizing your approach to risk management. So you're still going to have the basis of the original procedure, which was designed to handle risk, but it recognizes that this is a different ballpark, different ball game. It's like we've got, we're playing by different rules where we just don't know what we're going to bump into necessarily and we have to have mechanisms with which you're to absolutely to yeah you're absolutely right as well in that just because there isn't a risk register or just because there isn't a prescribed risk manager it doesn't mean that you're not managing risk every project is littered with risks and you have a qs a project manager a site manager all of these people that perhaps are managing it in their minds or managing it less formally i guess the question would be what is your advice in terms of managing risk, that less formal approach, risk register, even if it's a basic risk register, how would you advise companies to manage risk? Because surely if you formalize that process, even if it's, I don't know, a monthly risk meeting to review a risk register, what's the, what's the minimum that you would really recommend? Everyone's context is different, right? So it's, it's really difficult to give a one size fits all answer to these kinds of things. Uh, and I wouldn't really attempt to. So, what I think is probably the most important is communication is, is key. So as long as there's communication flow such that someone can kind of blow a whistle and say, do you know what? I think we might need to up our game. Take it back a step before you even get into a project, before you're executing a project, you would know what the nature of the project is because you tended, you, you did work winning, right? So you will have gathered enough information through that process such that you would you should have an inkling of the degree of risk management that is going to be required to satisfy it, to, to manage it successfully. So you know, we haven't talked much about opportunities and things like that, decision making. There are so many other facets to, uh, to, to this. And when in the life cycle of the project, you'd actually apply these things. So and to what frequency and intensity as well. So 
it's dynamic and that, that I'm so hesitant to give you a one size fits all answer because I don't think it really exists. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I want the next thing I was going to ask you about was, you know, we've talked a lot about the negative, the risk, but then there's the positive and the opportunity management as well. But I guess maybe where I'm landing and my own experience is, and I'm very open to you challenging this, is that quite often, you know, if you talk about there's no allocated risk manager on this project, or maybe even in this business, we don't have a risk manager per se. You will have project managers, commercial managers, whoever, health and safety managers managing risk. But it feels, or my experience was that it was always quite siloed and that the health and safety manager might be doing theirs, commercial manager might be doing theirs. And actually, a forum, a forum, a document, a place where that conversation is at a minimum collated and put together so that all those silos are actually operating in unison makes sense as a minimum. And that's something that I didn't experience very often at all, honestly. And I know it might sound mad to someone who's worked on HS2, but some of the people listening will be thinking, we don't have that. We don't even have a risk register. Yeah. I, I mean, that is one of the good things you can do with a risk register is you can start to look at the degrees of impact against different objectives or different types of risk like the health and safety, like reputation, like financial loss and schedule impact. You can articulate those on a scoring system and you can have things all consistently analysed, assessed in one, as you say, forum or document, uh, or it could be database. In terms of the siloing, I mean, you, you you do need to have, like, it is a, a strong recommendation that the subject matter expert, the person that is best placed to actually manage and actually handle the risk should be the risk owner in, a, in any case. Regardless of what the contract might actually say, you might actually need that person to really inform the conversation and, and the direction of mitigation. Uh, or, or if it was to do with opportunities and things, then, you know, what, what is it that we need to put in place in order to realise that? So, yes, there's a degree of silo, but I think you get that on projects anyway. It's kind of necessary regards subject matter expertise in the field. I think that the communication thing that I said earlier is the overarching recommendation because it allows you to transcend written process. It allows... The more people that are tra uh, being transparent and accessible with the information, the more chances, the more you know, touch points that something could actually change when someone goes, oh, actually, if we do this, I can help with that. Or, oh, really? Gosh, I'm exposed to that too. So when you facilitate and allow a group of people from different silos to kind of hear about how each other's things might actually be a potential chain of dominoes, one affecting the other, which then creates you know we're talking about feedback loops earlier i mentioned so who's the best person to actually handle that they're all affected but only one person might be the one that has the silver bullet and then when you understand it through the context of oh wow it affects so many different stakeholders here that's now the importance of the mitigation measure being actually resourced you know actually prioritized and actually put into position you, you, um, you talk about giving the risk to the most suitable risk owner, which naturally makes sense. One of the things that I've experienced in the past is being on a project as a subcontractor, seeing either in the tender document or in the contract document that 
a risk, a project risk at the main contract level has been allocated to a subcontractor, perhaps incorrectly, uh, or the perception is that it's not that the it, the risk has been handed to the wrong risk owner through the contract, through the procurement process. Is that something that you've experienced? Is it something that you've seen much of? I, I know that it happens because it's a fallacy, right? If you are the, the owner, you know, the customer, the ultimate customer, and you think you can subcontract the ownership of risk down the supply chain, who then subcontracts it down the supply chain further and further. Where's it go? <laughs> you, you could get, end up in a situation where you think done that yeah 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 i'm i'm bulletproof because i i wrote it in the contract but ultimately if that thing still happens and that person wasn't best placed to manage it and they then it was a fallacy it's going to come bite you on the bum anyway your project's going to be delayed you're going to have penalties you're going to be exposed to the negative media coverage potentially depending on the profile of the project and and all those kind of things so you know there was a really useful way of looking at it is i know that what we were describing there was like how do you use contracts to pretend you've managed risk (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but it would be far more sensible if you instead had the communication lines open and you went huh i can see what you're trying to do here but you know that if that happens we're a small medium-sized enterprise uh, we'll just go under you know, and, and you have at least the knock-on effect of having to go and find a, a replacement SME to fill in that gap, uh, which is going to take you time and level and effort. You've still got the consequence of the, the original risk, the original sin anyway, all because you mistakenly thought that you could pass it down. So a, a two-way conversation there as part of the tendering process would help remedy and highlight those kinds of things and make sure that the right risk owner really uh, came to uh, attention. You know, we, we all kind of like a consensus is built around what what is appropriate. And you might have to think about risk in another way, which is who's the best person to stop the risk from occurring in the first place, right, is one question. Another question is... If it happens, despite our best endeavours to make it not happen, you're now in damage limitation mode. Who do we want managing? Who then? owns the risk now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Does, does it does does ownership transfer between com- contractual commercial parties? Probably does. So, uh, yeah, so you can get into a situation where a customer might end up dealing with the damage limitation anyway. So, for a follow up on that, there's a, another podcast if I. I don't know if you're happy for me to sort of say. Plug but, away. Um, r- riskologist podcast. So that it's kind of like risk managers and risk risk people. And, you know, they had this episode where they talked about the risk carrier. So that, that if you want to know more about that, um, the risk carrier concept by Paul Sutcliffe. Excellent. Yeah. No, I'm definitely going to check that out myself, actually. One other thing, and this is, I think we're getting to the heart of the problem as well, or the mentality. And this is kind of what, going back yonks ago now, I was kind of thinking about in my dissertation. Is there many cases, like, is there a way? One of the things I used to always think is, you know, the way risks are procured, i.e. we'll give them that risk, even if they're not the most appropriate, or we'll give them that risk and they'll charge us for it, even if it's very unlikely to happen. And, you know, I don't know, stupid example, but it happens 
1% of the time, and when it happens, would cost you £10,000 versus it hap- you pay £1,000 each time, right? So you're actually paying £100,000 over the life of 100 projects versus 10,000. I feel that that happens all the time in construction projects, that risk is just given for no reason other than it's always been given. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another mechanism as part of the kind of contractual merry-go-round um, in discussing risk in a maybe less mature way than just having a conversation. So if you get into a situation where you've got people that are ideologically driven and they're just trying to pass it on for passing it on sake then that's what you're going to do to protect yourself you're going to say well look i can do the work for this amount of money this amount of time and this is the scope this is the quality of the scope that i can deliver for those parameters those constraints oh i've seen that you've also passed that risk you delineated that that's now my responsibility so here's my risk register and I'm showing you transparently how I'm costing this up, and I'm adding that into my fee. Into and this is how much it's also going to cost you. So that's how much it's going to cost you the work, and this is how much it's going to cost me to to own the risks. So you can have a conversation that goes ping pongs backwards and forwards between. Well, hang on, it's not really going to cost you that, is it? And it's like, well, it is to me. That's you don't know my business as well as I do. So this is how much. And if you want me to take the premium of that, or, or the the cost of that, this is the premium for me doing that. You know, I, I can I can insure my car through not just one, but many, many other providers. So that they all have different premiums. It would be quite interesting, you know, as a QS, when you're doing your tender and in your tender, you, you create your bill and you say price those 10 items. It's 100 square meters of this, 50 square meters of that. Quite interesting. And some some companies do this. Some QSs do this. If you put in risk number one how much to include this risk number two how much to include this risk number three how much to include this and then you would quickly see wow actually if i give them that risk that that's part of their submission to me and all of a sudden i'm paying for it and quite often that doesn't happen and in that not happening it kind of it's blurred you're kind of paying for it but it's not known this is the problem i just think that a lot of the way that we do both the tender stage procurement and then actually allocate risk in the contract is without real thought it's more just i'll just give them that and see if we get away with it more than who's the most important person who's the best person to manage this risk and then how much are we paying for this risk to be managed and is that the right amount to be paying for that risk to be managed that's how i always thought about it but never saw it in action yeah i mean i mean the ground conditions in construction projects is probably one of the most obvious ones of that you know you can't necessarily pass on the unknown unknowns because what what do we know what are the assumptions around this you know it might be that you can pass that risk down to someone that's willing to take it you know if, if they've had um, ground surveys done every x amount of distance and they, they they're comfortable with that and they go, well, what's the chance that between that survey point and that survey point, that something in between is going to be nasty? And they might be comfortable taking that risk on. So that's the other problem or aspect I mentioned to um, tendering work winning is, you know, some people are going to have more risk appetite because they need to win the work, maybe for political, commercial reasons that are more higher up in the corporate kind of structure that they've just been told win at all costs. You know, we'll, we'll deal with the risk, we'll take the gambit, you know, take the gamble so you know there's 
nice to think that risk management is standardized and it's always going to be you know cookie cutter it's one size fits all and it's just not because humans behaviors and all these other aspects that we've not really talked about so much biases and things you know that they all kind of creep in to uh, distort how it should perhaps work best no it's it's it's, it's fascinating isn't it there's, there's so many pieces to the puzzle you're absolutely right you know, there isn't one size fits all in terms of how you manage risks, like meet once a month to manage it on this format of risk register. Every business, every project and every risk needs, it, it kind of just needs to be managed in, in, in its own right. Yeah, it, it's a project by project basis and trying to establish the appropriate culture and kind of uh, receptiveness to wanting to talk about risk and if, if you can get that bit right then you just plug in an excel spreadsheet or you plug in a saffron risk manager database or you plug in on top of that the, the extra quantitative monte carlo simulation stuff as necessary and scale up as you need to but you know there's a maturity scale there but the most important thing like for me is like the culture if you get the culture, the communication, the transparency, the accessibility, the comfortableness, you know, the, you know, we talk about in health and safety is again, a really good example is the, the just culture, you know, is someone can be a, like a whistleblower for something can feel like they're not going to be absolutely strung up on the wall for grinding the project to a halt while something gets looked at, you know, it's that kind of thing, that, that a freedom to be able to say, hang on a minute, what about this? Has anyone thought about that and put it into part of the plan or, or at least the risk register where it can be explored as a kind of collaborative effort? I completely and utterly uh, agree with everything you're saying. And I think, you know, there isn't one size fits all. And you're absolutely right. It's culture and mentality around how you manage risk. And we are at the end of the show now and we have basically just kind of skimmed the top of of the topic right we've just and we've kind of got to a point now where we yeah. think i almost feel like i i knew i knew the kinds of questions the kinds of questions that could have come my way today yeah so i, I think fascinating chatting to you really enjoyed it and i'm sure the listeners have as well and it will have set the foundations and the framework i hope for many people listening as to perhaps how they can adjust their approach to managing risk or whether they are managing risk in a certain way I'm sure there is opportunity for us to explore further conversations, Chris, and we'll be doing that. I will um, share your details and Safran's details in the podcast description, and I will just extend my gratitude and thanks for you coming on the show and talking today uh, as eloquently as you have. So thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Cheers. Absolute pleasure. And everyone, as always, I will speak to you next week. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you.